In their own words, is supported in part by the Penn State School of Music, the Penn State Office of Educational Equity, the Flower Box, and viewers and listeners like you. Thank you. Welcome to the In Their Own Words podcast, conversations and interviews with people from the African diaspora regarding their impact on American music. Greetings all, my name is Tony Leach and I'm professor of music emeritus in the Penn State School of Music. And today we are absolutely thrilled to have three African-American musicians who are based in the state of Pennsylvania. And they have joined us in order to participate in our annual African-American Music Festival at Penn State. Dr. Maria Corley is based in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Mr. Christian Say is based in Harrisburg. And Professor Fred Dade is on the music faculty at Chippensburg University. So welcome. We're going to ask just a few broad questions, and hopefully all of you will respond from your perspective. So let's be personal first. Just share some aspects of your journey in music. You don't have to take us back to the cradle, but by the same token, there are three of you. So, I believe in ladies first. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, mine does go back to the cradle, but I'll skip. My um, grandmother went to the New England Conservatory, um, and she was a piano major in the 1930s. She was from Bermuda. And uh, my mom learned from her. So the piano was in our home, and uh, my mom taught each of us. I had an older brother, and I wanted to play from the time I was two. She started teaching me um, when I was four. Yeah, I just always wanted to play the piano. I was drawn to the piano. My teacher, who became my major teacher for the longest period of time through my college years, had gone to Juilliard, and so she just said, you know, you should go to Juilliard. And that was it. It was like kind of... That was the only place that you should go, which was, as I learned later, kind of a, well, narrow interpretation, since a lot of those teachers teach other places. It would have been wise to audition other places. But I did get in on my second try into the master's program and went on to do a doctorate at Juilliard. You know, it was interesting. I, I was infallible and invincible until I sort of got more awareness of the fact that, um, you know, you can forget things or you know, things can happen, um, which I had a car accident when I was 17 that messed with my memory. But I want to mention, I didn't mention my teachers by name, so I should, other than my mother, Eva Thompson. Um, then my next teacher was a lady named Thelma Johannes O'Neill, followed by Alexander Munn was the one who went to Juilliard. And then at Juilliard, um, George Shondor was my teacher there. I just always had a deep love for the instrument. I did a lot of collaborating and ended up composing and arranging and um, just a multitude of experiences because I had that much love of music that, you know, whatever was required to maintain my love affair, I would do. And I'm glad for every different experience that I've had as a musician. My journey is maybe a little different out of the three in that um, I do not have a music degree. My degree is actually in, in business. This is Christian Say. started studying voice um, my junior, senior year in high school. 
Uh, and the interesting thing is growing up in a family of 10, African-American family, being mainly exposed to R&B, it was interesting that uh, as I started studying voice, um, I kind of took the classical route. Uh, my first voice, voice teacher, the infamous Dr. Anthony Leach, who worked with me for 10 solid years and gave me um, a very rich uh, foundation. The strong part of that journey was that Tony was always, always putting his students out there, always putting his students on stage, always presenting us, um, giving us opportunities to perform, to hone our craft. So even though um, when I went to college, I decided to get a degree in business administration, I always kept music in my life. Music was always a part of who I, I was and still who, who I am. Um, so I continued to perform. People started paying me to perform. So I realized that I actually needed to treat this as if it was a profession. Um, because people were, were giving me something and expecting me to do something in return, and that was to do a good job. So over the years, I've had some wonderful experiences in and out of the country from this point to that point. So it's been a wonderful journey and a very significant and wonderful part of my life. I think for me, my exposure to music really came as a result of a woman named Mary Sorensen. This is Fred Dade speaking. She was a founder of the Fine Arts Academy in Chicago. Before that, my only exposure to music was church and a little bit in school. And so she, she started this Fine Arts Academy as a way to give students exposure, you know, who would normally not have exposure to the arts. I'm very grateful to her. I studied piano with her at the, starting at the age of seven until around 12 or 13, and then she said, well, I've done as much as I can for you, I'm gonna send you to someone else. And so not only did I get exposure to music in the academy, but also dance and theater, so it was like the whole uh, gamut of the art, so I really appreciate that, because otherwise I would not have had the exposure. That's when I really gained a love for music, but also for classical music in particular. She exposed me to that. And I continued um, high school. I wasn't quite sure what I wanted to do. It was either music or math. And so I gravitated more toward the music because that's really what I love to do. So I, when I went to college, which was Wheaton College in Chicago, outside of Chicago, first I was a piano performance major for a year. Then I went to music education for the rest of my time there. Had a wonderful teacher, Dr. William Femister, who I still keep in touch with. He's a dear friend. And... Uh, he continued my love and just continued to grow into music. And again, going from other, to other teachers from there, um, I could have continued to grow. And um, these past, I would say 20 years, I've gotten more exposure to music of African-American composers, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. which has been a whole new light. So I, I've loved it and I continue to want to learn and continue to perform that type of music. So mm -hmm. thank you. When you think about some of the significant moments in your journey, in your musical journey, is there one or maybe two encounters that were pivotal in you moving forward? Pivotal, I guess mainly I decided when I was quite young that I was gonna be a concert pianist, so it wasn't like a light bulb went off, it was like I had just decided this is what was gonna happen. Maria Thompson Corley, I know that when I was 14, I started practicing really much more seriously. I had sort of 
gotten by on a certain degree of natural facility mm -hmm. and ability and picking things up quickly. And then, you know, you get to be a little bit bigger and it's not like, oh, look at that little kid playing such and such, this mm -hmm. hard piece. Mm -hmm. And uh, so it came to me that, okay, yeah, it, that's not where it is anymore. You know, you really have to dig in and get to the meat of this and really be serious about hitting all the notes as much as you can and not just sort of, you know, coasting a little bit. Otherwise, I would say the first recording I was asked to participate in, it was Dr. Daryl Taylor, who's the founder of the African American Art Song Alliance. Uh, I met him while I was on faculty at Florida A&M University, and he was coming through <laughs> doing his presentations on African American art song. I was asked to play, you know, with him. I remember I was extremely grouchy because I was seven or eight months pregnant at the time and just ready for that to be over. That was my first child. And so um, I was surprised that he called me back and asked me to perform with him in, in Hungary at the List Academy three years later, and then asked me in this recording project. And just the idea that I could be on a recording that was gonna be released um, was a major thing for me. I, I um, you know, and I've made a couple of recordings since then. It sort of gave, just more of a sense of like, wow, you really can reach out to a large number of people. And he's, he had given me a platform to increase that, so. I believe I'm next. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, I will comment on what Maria says in that <clears throat> that particular recording was probably the first recording I brought up music of African-American composers. Um, I remember it, remember it very vividly. Uh, there's, there's probably two instances, um, Tony, one um, for me is when, when you get asked to perform with a symphony orchestra, you go to symphony and you see soloists walk out. Uh, but when you're personally invited to sing with a symphony orchestra for the first time, you, you, do, you, you think I've arrived, okay? Or you think I'm good enough to be where, where, where others are. Um, so that, that's, a, that's a pivotal moment for me. Um, you will remember um, before Born to Die, um, I was, I'm singing in a group in Harrisburg called Capital Area Music Association. It's a predominantly African-American community um, choral group um, focusing on music of African-American composers. Um, and my second year in, um, they were prepared, preparing a piece called um, Mary Had a Baby by Roland Carter. Uh, the soloist got sick the night before, and I was asked by, by Tony to step in and be the soloist. So I had to go home and learn this piece overnight. Um, and that was when I really realized that my singing was having an effect on people. And that, that's pivotal for, for, for soloists and for instrumentalists when I realized that I had moved the audience to a degree. My, my career just, just went from there. I was asked to sing all the time after, after that particular ex experience. But when you realize that your voice that's part of you can move an audience in whatever way you move them, um, that's pivotal to believing in yourself and knowing that I have something I can share. I can run with this. I think for me, uh, I mentioned in, the, in my first answer about my college teacher, Dr. Femister. When I came to him, I was probably like a scared puppy. I didn't feel very confident about my playing at all. And after spending four years with him, I was a different person. I felt like he, he just kind of, he, he wasn't a, like, a, like a taskmaster, just like, you know, and just kind of guided me gently and started um, 
he encouraged me all the time, but started, you know, more and more challenging repertoire. And so by the time I got to graduate, by the time I graduated, I felt like I was much more confident. Wasn't there yet. I mean, I'm still, still getting, you know, I'm not, certainly have not arrived, but I felt like uh, at that point I was a more confident um, musician. And then when I went to other teachers after him, I was like, well, I could have never played this in college. I was just wasn't, wasn't there, wasn't ready for it. So I appreciate the fact that, you know, sometimes you, you need that, you need people in your life to kind of, they know, they see your potential. Maybe you don't see it, but they see it in you and they, they, they push you and guide you and lead you to that place where you can finally say, okay, now I can, I, I can do this. And I couldn't do it before. So I'm grateful for that. Very good. I uh, recently completed another interview and I asked the artist to define American music. You see it all the time, you hear it, we are living in it because that's what we do professionally. And at the same time, we are totally aware that depending on who's answering that question, their response is going to emerge from whatever point of origin whatever they're actively doing, maybe what they're listening to, what they're being paid to do, whatever. So when you hear this expression, American music, and that's a part of the title of this series, our our interviews with persons from the African diaspora and their impact on American music, what immediately comes to mind for you? Christian Say begins. I'm going to jump in and say R&B. Okay. Rhythm and blues. Okay. Yep. Again, growing up in a large family, that's what we heard. Um, that's that's what we lived, listened to. But it is it is truly American music. Oh yes, it is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like gospel music. Mm-hmm. Definitely the good news. Yeah, I man. That's what I grew up in church. You know, that's what what you heard. So that's. Mm-hmm. And um, and my perspective is um, I was born in Jamaica and lived in Canada until I was 20. I am a naturalized citizen, so I'm an immigrant. Um, so I'll say that you know both of those things were things I associated with America, also um, jazz, as opposed to reggae, which was, and the steel drums, which were very much a part of my upbringing and clearly not American music. Um, if I were to go to, you know, and rock and roll, of course, grew out of um, those, you know, there's so many things that were uh, ragtime, you know. A lot of these things, the roots are, are in the African-American experience, so a lot of them grew out of that. And at this stage of the game, any, I mean, anybody who is American who writes music, to me, it, it doesn't have to be like one form, but it's undeniable mm-hmm. that African-Americans have had an impact on music mm-hmm. and not just American music, but music all over the world. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, and, and I know that the indigenous uh, people, you know, their music also is the first American music, even though we perhaps aren't as familiar um, uh, in the wider mainstream of what that music is. But if you want to really break it down, I mean, that's the original American music. So, mm-hmm. musics, because I'm sure, you know, there's a wide variety in that uh, community as well. It's complicated. It, it is, is very it is. unfortunately very, very messy. Well, it it's, messy. it's layered. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. It is. and all you have to do is peel one layer back, and yeah. something else 
immediately pops up. Mm -hmm. And uh, I mean, just to, uh, I, I, I did this with another person. I said, I'm just going to throw out some, some names or some labels mm -hmm. and just give us your first response. Mm -hmm. And because of where they were located, uh, of course, all of it was mm -hmm. familiar. Mm -hmm. And that brings me to where I want to go next with you. Mm -hmm. Chris, you're the only member of our panel that's actually born mm -hmm. in Pennsylvania. Mm -hmm. So when you, and, but of course, you've traveled mm -hmm. all over the world, mm -hmm. and that's a blessing. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, your roots are in South Central Pennsylvania. Very true. So when you think about aspects, not only rhythm and blues, mm -hmm. but when you think of, of just aspects of music and things that you tend to pay attention to mm -hmm. from Pennsylvania. Mm. What immediately comes to mind for you? Well, I, I have to say um, probably gospel. Mm -hmm. Gospel music comes to mind. Um, being, being someone who's always been in church, just growing up in church, um, and always being enamored with the choir mm -hmm. and what, what, what the choirs were doing, um, that was... That, that always grabbed my attention. That's really kind of what actually even drew me in yeah. before I even started studying voice. Mm -hmm. So that would be my first response to that. Okay, good, mm -hmm. good. Fred, you're a native of Chicago. Yeah. And of course, academic appointment brought you to Pennsylvania, mm -hmm. to Shippensburg University. What are those things that immediately come to mind for you? Well, like Chris, I mean, for me, the, the gospel sticks out so much, you know, um, I went to, I did my student teaching with uh, Lena McGlynn. Oh, who yes. Was yes, I know. The niece Lena. of Tommy, Thomas Dorsey, yeah. Thomas Dorsey is known as the father of gospel music. He was music director at Chicago's Pilgrim Baptist Church and wrote more than a thousand songs, including Take My Hand, Precious Lord. His niece, Nina McGlynn, is an accomplished composer, pastor, and teacher in the Chicago public school system. It was great studying with her, great work. I, I, did, I didn't really do a lot of teaching. I was more observing her, but that was okay, so. Um, <laughs> Kendall Academy? Yeah, Kenwood, yes, yes. 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 So, so yeah. Um, wow. Uh, Mahalia Jackson used to babysit my mother. What? So, <laughs> you mean, so. Mahalia Jackson is known as the queen of gospel music. Her influence on music is widely respected, being inducted into the Grammy, gospel, Rock and Roll, and Rhythm of Blues Halls of Fame. It's part of my family, yeah. <laughs> mm -hmm. So, um, mm -hmm. like I said, uh, you know, I grew up hearing, hearing this great music. Uh, so the, the, those roots have never left me. So. Yeah. And I now, always return to those. did you grow up on the south side? Yes. West, ah. Uh, well, then, yeah, there was no escape. <laughs> no, you got that right. <laughs> Very good. Very good. Um, and for the immigrant perspective. Yes. As I mentioned, uh, or I think I mentioned, well, my mom was raised um, every Sunday, you could only listen to Western European classical music, why that was considered more anything than anything else, I don't know. So I heard a lot of Bach on Sunday and Handel and, you know, Beethoven and um, that sort of thing. But um, my dad uh, was steeped in, you know, Bob Marley and Joe Williams, and he loved Ella and Carmen McRae and um, Sarah Vaughan, can't leave out Sarah Vaughan. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I used to get him to make me mixtapes of all those old singers 
um, Nancy Wilson, mm-hmm. um, yes. you know, all yes. these masters of taking the words and making them come alive and the phrasing and just, um, you know, the timing and the improvisation. And, and then there was Bob. We had to have our Bob Marley. And, um, you know, just his, um, not only the deep messages in the songs, but, you know, obviously reggae itself. Um, I'm thinking of Nina now, mm. Nina Simone. So um, it had sort of this rich cross-pollinization of all these influences. Not so much, um, uh, well, the modern, the more modern stuff back when I was a kid, so it's not modern anymore. Um, you know, I had to try to find, because there was a Canadian content role, so you got a lot of Canadian music on the radio, which makes sense, because, you know, now you don't have to do that anymore. But mm. You know, um, so uh, I had influenced by a lot of groups that perhaps you hadn't heard of, like if I turned on the radio. Um, but I mean, the, we sought out American music. And I remember when Rapper's Delight came out and we had to, you didn't hear it on the radio, any station that I grew up with, but I don't even know how we found out about it. But, you know, went to the uh, alternative bookstore and would dig through the stacks to find the American R&B and find these groups by mistake. Um, discovered people like Prince, not knowing who the heck he was, and Michael Jackson had cut through, so we we did have um, the Jacksons and things like that. But um, yeah, I mean, all these things. Mahalia was kind of the only gospel singer that I was aware of. Hmm. Um, they certainly didn't play that music. So um, there were a lot of things when I came to the states and at 20. So you know, it was not yesterday um, that I found out. Um, you know, along the way and. Um, that education of some of these classic groups, we would get a little bit on New Year's Eve, at New Year's Eve parties, the DJ would have the, the latest music. Um, so we would find out other things to pursue, but finding an identity in a place where I grew up, which was predominantly white, um, you know, we were reminded of our identity by the people who called us names when we were in elementary school. Mm-hmm. Um, but like, embracing that and celebrating it as we went along. You know, my parents were very sure to expose us to, um, we had a West Indian dance class Mm. that we all went to. I wasn't a great dancer, but I learned the songs, learned some of the moves, and they were very um, intentional about making sure that we had connections to positive aspects. We learned negative aspects. I can't can't forget a, a documentary about South Africa, and I was appalled. And then when I discovered, you know, learned about lynchings and things like that, again, you know, it was a hard lesson, but we knew racism because we were experiencing it. But, you know, my parents were able to both give us the realities and also nurture us in the idea that our culture was something that was special and wonderful and that no matter who tried to say anything to denigrate, us that that was not the truth. Mm-hmm. And you could see the truth and experience the truth as you heard all these things, this music and experience the dance and, and all these other things that they um, exposed us to. Mm-hmm. You're listening to the In Their Own Words podcast, interviews and conversations with persons from the African diaspora and their impact on American music. Pianist composer, Maria Thompson Corley, tenor Christian Say, and pianist educator Fred Dade. Join Penn State Professor Emeritus Tony Leach for the annual African American Music Festival in early 2023. What are your takeaways 
from your journey, from what you're experiencing, and how do we move, keep moving this thing forward? So um, I, I remember when I started being exposed to music of African-American composers outside of the Negro spirituals, mm -hmm. Fred mentioned, and it's probably been, I know, over 20 years. So when I think about your question and I think about the, the growth and the expansion that this, this whole thing that we call music of African-American composers has, has taken. Um, and and, and let's, be, let's be clear, because we're talking about classical music by African-American composers that has been buried mm. for, for years. And so we're now finally being exposed to and performing classical music by African-American composers, which takes us outside of this box of they only do spirituals, yeah. they only do gospel music. That's all black people can do. In this conversation, an important term to know is non-idiomatic. That is, in this case, when the music of African-American composers is beyond gospel, spirituals, blues, and the like, thus emphasizing the art origin of the classical music idioms. And this growth has, has, has taken place nationally, and it's, it's taken place worldwide. And it's, it's wonderful to see. It's wonderful to see. You know, we always say, well, you know, we're not there yet, um, but we have moved the needle significantly mm -hmm. when it comes to classical music composed by African-American composers. So I'll, I'll leave my comments there and let the two of them share as well. You know, one of the things I've been surprised about in the past few years is um, people like Florence Price and Samuel Courage Taylor and mm -hmm. William, I'm hearing them on the radio now. Mm -hmm. They're getting, I don't know what it is. Mm -hmm. I I, mm -hmm. Somebody had a meeting. Somebody had a meeting. I don't, I don't know what has caused this, but I, I told Chris a, a, a while, I said, well, didn't Florence Price die like 53? Like, they just now know her music? Well, I think you know? George Floyd was murdered and then people started yeah, I looking. think that's... Well, I know, I mm -hmm. know, because immediately mm -hmm. after that, a number of organizations, even like the Juilliard School, reached out to some alum, mm -hmm. alums and were like, can you give us a list of composers of mm -hmm. African descent that mm -hmm. we should be considering? Now, I, it would have been nice if they had done a little research. Like, um, I, I loved that last night there were some composers represented who were so young, mm -hmm, like mm -hmm. the age of my kids, like in their early 20s. And I, I, Tony, you said that the students and the teachers had found this music. And um, so not everybody is, you know, just waiting for someone to hand them something. They're actually out on the look, uh, on the lookout for these things. But, um, you know, I, I really saw a sea change. Mm -hmm. And what I was telling somebody yesterday was that I hope that enough people have gotten through the door mm -hmm. that it will be impossible to like shut them out. You know, there are enough people. I was first exposed uh, when I was at Juilliard to um, From the Dark Tower by Dorothy Redmore, mm -hmm. um, which is just a masterpiece. Mm -hmm. And um, But I can't say, you know, I learned a lot of music by black composers then. I was studying with Mr. Shandor and, you know, I was doing... I, all the really cool pieces that I had grown up mm. knowing, they're admittedly cool pieces, and he was the guy who knew you know, that music and not the other. So um, then uh, when I was at Florida A&M on faculty for a number of years, Mary Roberts, Dr. Mary Roberts was the head of the department, and I got exposed to 
some more music, and then over time with starting to record it, then I you know, started to dig deeper. People started to send me things, not all of which I had time to learn, but you know, so I, I think that it was really that national moment of, and worldwide moment mm-hmm. of seeing, oh, maybe something isn't right, maybe things aren't just on merit. And I'll say my last comment is that, you know, when I was at Juilliard, and I said this many times, when I keep saying it, my piano lit teacher, I don't know how this came up in class, but said that the reason that there wasn't more music by black people in the canon was that it hadn't risen to the level of being included in the mainstream. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And at the time, I didn't know enough music to say, well, what about, and, and also if I had said, well, what about this person, this person, this person, anyone who would make that statement would just say, well, you know, is it Beethoven, is it Bach, or whatever, you know, so at least that's my gut reaction, even if I had tried to debate him on that. And, but the main thing is, I, I don't think you need to debate people. I think you perform the music and you see these wonderful students who are starting to perform the music, mm-hmm. and the music speaks for itself. And you don't have to argue with somebody. It's just, does, do, how are people experiencing this music? And the experience is undeniable. So, um, yeah, it's a shame. And I know, I, I, I have said also that I think there's a little box checking going on in the sense of, okay, oh, wow, we should be more diverse, so let's get some Florence Price, you know, and people don't necessarily go outside of Florence Price and William Grant still. But um, it's a start, and I think that people, you know, there is a little bit more happening, and I'm, as someone who is an immigrant, also I see all over the world, there are these composers people haven't heard of who are black, and I did black Mm -hmm. women specifically. And um, so, you know, the wheel is turning yeah. as much as, you know. Like at the Met. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're doing Terrence Blant, you know, they did a fire. fire. Yeah, mm-hmm. so yeah, I mean, I that's, that was unheard of just so, a few years ago. And mm-hmm. isn't that ridiculous? What year are we in? And it's like, this is the first <laughs> time that they've done something like that, mm-hmm. you know? And I see these things like the first black nutcracker, Clara, you know, is was like within the last three or four years. Maria is speaking of Charlotte Nembrus, who in 2019 became the first black lead in the New York Ballet's production of The Nutcracker. I mean, you got to start somewhere, several hundred years later. Um, But, you know, I mean, I'm glad that at least as people are trying to make sure that the curricula don't reflect certain things, that, um, you know, there seems to be enough weight on the other side of, okay, well, and it's not inclusion for the sake of inclusion. You know, it's inclusion because there is a body of music that speaks to people and should be heard mm-hmm. for the people who are open to receiving music of this genre. And, um, you know, my hope is that people will start to see music as a language and that there isn't one language that is worthy of being spoken. And just, you know, free your mind. <laughs> I, th- I think we're all hoping that we are at least on the path of um, our music being presented for its worth mm-hmm. and not mm-hmm. for the sake of checking the box. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and I, I, th- I think we're on the first step mm-hmm. of probably a long path, mm-hmm. um, but I, I, I always say you gotta start somewhere. Mm-hmm. Um, it's unfortunate that sometimes tragic, tragic events put us there, mm-hmm. um, but I believe we've taken that first step on the path and. Mm-hmm. 
maybe not in our lifetime, um, but hopefully um, 10, 20, 30 years from now, when people start to hear uh, works of Florence Price and William Grant Steele and then the, the up and coming composers um, mm -hmm. that are coming, it won't be, oh, that's a black composer mm -hmm. or that's the first black composer or, you know, isn't that a black composer? Um, it should be, that's Florence Price. That's William Grant Steele. Mm -hmm. That's Maria Corley. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, and no race attached to it. And isn't their music wonderful? Mm -hmm. so. Yeah, and that's, mm -hmm. a, that's the mm -hmm. sort of thing that mm -hmm. I, I balance in the sense mm -hmm. of like, because of the lack of representation, mm -hmm. because it has become unnecessarily complex mm -hmm. because of white supremacy, mm -hmm. um, then, you know, on the one hand, you know, so I was told you should change your name because no one knows, you know, people will see your name and they won't know that you're black. Um, and my answer is sort of was complicated and I won't go into it. But, you know, I mean, it's, it is unfortunate that identities need to be established in that regard. On one, hap, on one hand, if someone is an Italian composer, you often can tell by their name. Maybe, mm -hmm. maybe not. Maybe mm -hmm. they married into a family that wasn't Italian. You don't know their background. But... Um, I, I do look for that day where mm. it doesn't matter. And, mm. and, you know, I'm trying to live in a world where I don't have to feel like I represent a whole group. Like, I was the only black pianist at Juilliard for a number of years. And, you know, I, I carried the weight for a little while of do people think that black people belong here mm -hmm. based on how well I play or mm -hmm. how... And then I, the second year, I was like, okay, I'm not taking that on. You know, that's their problem, not mine. I'm mm. here to learn. I'm here to do the best I can. And whatever they are going to think is what they're going to think regardless. Mm. You know, but um, it's a lot. I mean, you're not going to like every piece by a black composer, mm -hmm. nor should you have to like every piece by anybody, mm -hmm. you know. Yeah, and But that's the thing. Yeah. It's like, do you put more weight in it? Well, we programmed a black composer and nobody mm -hmm. liked that piece. Mm -hmm. You know, maybe this diversity thing is overrated, mm -hmm. you know, as opposed to, well, there's a pool of a whole bunch of other music, maybe mm -hmm. even by that same person mm -hmm. that people would enjoy. And does everybody like, you know, even um, someone had to fight to program Schoenberg, uh, you know, they were saying this group wanted to pro program a piece by Schoenberg and they had been rejected and they were so glad that Gretna allowed them to play this mm -hmm. piece. Oh, yeah. So, you know, it's a thing. Like, mm -hmm. people don't have to enjoy everything, but that doesn't mean that you then shut the door and say, well, they obviously were excluded for a good reason because look at this piece. It's not very good. Mm -hmm. We don't like it. Mm -hmm. So, um, anyway. But then the Schoenberg turned out to be the standout piece of the evening. It was. So it was. It was very, it was very enjoyable and very, yeah. very musical. Yeah. And maybe some mm -hmm. people still didn't like it, mm -hmm. but, you know, there were people who did. And um, you, it's, it's a shame everything has become so complex. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it really is a shame. I think one of the also, you talked about how that we keep it going. I think one of the things I'm seeing with particularly some of these younger musicians is that they're going on and they're performing. Like, we, we went to a concert of Randall Goosby. Oh, yeah. Violin. I mean, That's he's... Fantastic. Randall Goosby is a young, super-talented violinist who performs concerts around the world. He played Ravel, Boulanger, did the Kreutzer, but he also did the... William um, Grant Steele. William Grant Steele. Mm -hmm. It was just part of the... Pro it wasn't... Yeah. Oh yeah, it was just it and it be, was wonderful. It doesn't have to be all or nothing. It, mm -hmm. It's right. good. It's good to have things that spotlight specifically because mm -hmm. of this erasure that has happened. Mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. you know, that's I, I think that's what you were talking about. Mm -hmm. It's just like okay, here's a bunch of music mm -hmm. and here's a piece and you know, it's William Grant still. It's a great piece and this is Ravel. It's a great piece and this is a great piece right. and I put them all together and. Have a yeah. good, in, enjoyable evening. Right. Mm -hmm. and it was just part of the part of the program. It wasn't. Yeah, it was wonderful. Mm -hmm. Of course. Very fine. I'd like to thank the three of you for 
sharing these moments with us today. It's been educational. It has been engaging. It's been provocative. It's been challenging. Moments of discovery within all that we have heard and, and bringing forward things that maybe have not been, been shared with others uh, in a scenario like this. But this is why this series exists, to provide that platform where we can not only be at ease with each other, but we can really talk about things that are meaningful to us mm -hmm. and that are important and transformative to those that will uh, pay attention to this particular series and all that will emerge from it. So thank you so much thank for you. being thank with you. us today. Thank you. <laughs> thank you for listening to the In Their Own Words podcast series, conversations and interviews with people from the African diaspora regarding their impact on American music. I'm Charles Dumas. Thanks for listening. In Their Own Words is supported in part by the Penn State School of Music, the Penn State Office of Educational Equity, the Flower Box, and viewers and listeners like you. Thank you.